0: Hello and welcome to a special edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast. I'm currently recording this at the end of day two of the Brexit case that is being heard before the Supreme Court. Um, I nearly actually said trial there and I guess in some ways Theresa May and the government are on trial but this is actually a civil law case brought by way of judicial review. In this short episode, I want to focus on what the main arguments of the government are and have been brought forward by John Edie QC during the last couple of days when the government have had the chance, as the appellants, to put forward their main arguments. I guess in order to get to the bottom of this, we need to actually understand what the case is about. And one thing that we do know for certain is that in June of this year, the British people voted to leave the European Union by way of a referendum and the way that we leave the European Union is by triggering the famous article 50 of the treaty on the functioning of the European Union. However the dispute in this case is whether as the government asserts the government can trigger article 50 by itself or as Gina Miller asserts and the other people who brought this case assert it has to actually go before parliament and be voted on in the House of Commons. So the government's argument focuses on understanding the law, or rather domestic and international law, as operating almost on two separate planes. On the top plane we have international law, and the government conducts negotiations and treaties with other countries. In order for these treaties to then be brought into domestic law, it's then up to the Parliament to do this. And so we see a perfect example of this, when the UK joined the European Union, it was the government that conducted all of the negotiations and the treaty signings, and then it was Parliament who brought this into force by way of the European Communities Act 1972. The government is therefore saying that this triggering of Article 50 is part of the international negotiations, and therefore should be conducted by the government. Furthermore, there's no need for Parliament to have a say okay at a later stage when Brexit negotiations are ongoing and it needs to be brought within the realms of domestic law, in other words the actual Brexit itself, then obviously Parliament will have a role. But for this first initial stage that's conducted on the international plane, it's up to the government to actually perform this function. John EDQC did recognise that it is possible for Parliament to hold back government in this regard, as ultimately parliamentary sovereignty is a key part of our dualist constitution. However, unless parliament explicitly or clearly implies that the government shouldn't be negotiating treaties or conducting foreign affairs in a particular area, then it's ultimately up to the government to conduct this Article 50 triggering. This is a principle that's derived from the De Keyser's Hotel case that's often been referred to over the last couple of days by the government. The argument then proceeds by looking at the various Acts of Parliament to try and find whether the government's prerogative in this matter has actually been removed at all. And so they go back to the European Communities Act that we've already discussed and they've said there's nothing there to stop uh, the government triggering Article 50. Furthermore, the European Union Amendment Act 2008 that brought into force the Lisbon Treaty doesn't make any mention of it at all. And other acts that have occurred more recently, for example, the European Union Act 2011 and the 2015 Act that brought about the referendum, make no reference to holding back the government's powers as regards triggering Article 50. In other words, this is a relatively simple argument that states that under normal UK constitutional law, it's for the government to commit to international negotiations and treaties. Article 50 is a part of international negotiations, and so because Parliament hasn't said otherwise, it's ultimately up to the government to trigger Article 50. While well, this is obviously the main argument, there's also an interesting political argument that was put forward by the government. And this is basically saying that in the European Union Referendum Act that was passed, the government passed the question of triggering Article 50 to the British people and the British people voted to trigger Article 50. It therefore doesn't make sense for the question now to go back to Parliament for Parliament to once again confirm what the British people have already told them. The government should basically just act on what the people have said and trigger Article 50 as per the European Union Referendum Act 2015. So how good are these arguments? Well, let's start with the positives. Well, in terms of constitutional law, this is a pretty solid argument. On the international plane, it is always the government who has acted and conducted negotiations and treaties, as we've previously mentioned then been up to Parliament to actually commit the British people to these decisions that have been made by the government to incorporate it into the domestic law. Furthermore they're quite right to point out that there doesn't seem to be anything that holds the government back in this regard that's explicitly stated within any particular statute or act of Parliament. The second good thing about the argument is probably this reference to the royal prerogative The other side have often been critical of the royal prerogative as being a sort of ancient and bygone power, and that the Queen doesn't really have any relevance anymore to conducting political decisions on behalf of the British people. Really, it's for Parliament to be sovereign. This is not really one of their key arguments, but it's interesting that the government have picked this up and said that the royal prerogative is still a part of the UK constitution, and is an important way for the government to be able to operate. This is certainly true, and while we might be critical of the royal prerogative and sometimes the way in which it is used in order to bypass some of the scrutiny of parliament, this is not the question in this particular case. So what about the negatives of the government's arguments? Well, one of the key problems for me is that they haven't really varied their argument much since losing the case quite convincingly in the divisional court, The divisional court said that the logic of the government was frankly baffling and it was no wonder that they lost that particular case. This was also a point that I made in the previous episode and I suggested that when the case did go to the Supreme Court it would be up to the government lawyers to actually try and develop the argument a little bit further particularly in reference to some of the more modern Acts of Parliament, rather than referring back to the European Communities Act 1972, or solely relying on the principles of constitutional law. I think the fact that they haven't done this is actually slightly worrying. I think the other main disadvantage of this particular case brought by John EDQC is that it's not addressing the arguments that have been brought forward by Gina Miller. The applicants focus on the idea that the European Communities Act 1972 is of special constitutional importance, and this was a point that was raised by the judges who questioned John EDQC about this. He did concede that the statute was of constitutional importance, but said that this wasn't relevant in the case or didn't matter because of the constitutional principles that were involved. I think that this is quite short-sighted. As I've talked about previously, the European Union endows the British people with a number of key and essential rights that have been in existence now for about 40 years. To simply end these rights, as triggering Article 50 would do after a two-year period, without any parliamentary scrutiny whatsoever of the domestic implications, is really problematic. This is probably why the secondary government argument that focuses on the political ramifications of holding a referendum and the will of the British people is important. But I think to ignore the role that Parliament plays within the domestic scene is really unfortunate and fails to get to the core of the issue. Well thank you for listening to this podcast episode. I hope to do another one later on this week that focuses on the arguments of the applicant and do a similar type of thing going through the advantages and the disadvantages of the applicant's arguments. I'm at the House of Lords on Thursday morning and I'm hoping to maybe even drop by across the road at the Supreme Court in the afternoon which would be really great and it'd be awesome to see Lord Panic in action. He's already started his arguments by the time I'm recording this at the end of day two, and a lot of people are quite impressed. Both sides' lawyers are getting heavily scrutinised by all 11 judges on the panel in this case, and it's perhaps quite telling to see how they're holding up. John Eadie perhaps struggling a little bit, getting into his own arguments and finding them to be quite convoluted, Lord Panic, on the other hand, perhaps a bit too dismissive of some of the arguments and rolling with them a little bit too much. We're not expecting a judgement on this case until January and so the only real indication that we have as to which way the wind is blowing as far as the judges are concerned is to try and look at the different areas that they are scrutinising. They seem to not want to focus too much on the 1972 Act and want to bring it forward more to the more recent Acts of Parliament that have discussed this issue, and this seems sensible given that Article 50 was only introduced by the Lisbon Treaty in 2008. It's also quite interesting to see that the judges have not exactly been shy in terms of their criticism of the Conservative government and how ill-prepared they seem to be for the consequences of Brexit. Right, that's all from me. Uh, I'll look forward to speaking to you later on this week with another update, but for now, bye!